Well, hello, everyone. Good morning and welcome to everybody. And thanks for joining the 2021 select USA investment summit. Uh, welcome to our panel today on India. Uh, we are discussing Indian roots, American soil, uh, or Indian industry in the US, Indian success stories uh, in the US. And we are excited to share with you uh, about Indian FDI uh, and what our companies uh, are doing here and how we can uh, attract and retain uh, and support Indian companies. Uh, I'm Shuchita Sonalika and I head the North America operations for the Confederation of Indian Industry. Uh, CII has encouraged and supported Indian uh, companies investing in the US since we opened our North America office in DC uh, in 1995. And as India's apex uh, chamber uh, for business and industry, we serve as a resource uh, for both our 250,000 industry members across uh, India, uh, as well as uh, support as a partner to economic development agencies uh, across the US looking to attract and investment and, and job creation in their states, in their communities. Today, we have an exciting panel uh, featuring two of our largest and most innovative uh, tech companies, uh, Infosys and Wipro, uh, and two states who have been uh, the beneficiaries of these investments, uh, North Carolina and Minnesota. We have with us Kapil Sharma, uh, who's been the past chair of CIS India Business Forum uh, in the US, uh, and he's the vice president of government and public affairs for Wipro, and Anurag Varma, who's the vice president and head of government and public affairs for Infosys. They will share with us today uh, what drew them uh, to these states uh, and what uh, and how what is the extent of their uh, investment and impact uh, onto US economy and society. And for a holistic understanding of the process, I'm also pleased to introduce uh, Christopher Chung, CEO of Economic Development Partnership of North Carolina, and Lawrence Rezitar, Director for International Business Strategy for the Minnesota Trade Office, who will share their state's perspective on how they attracted Indian FDI uh, and supported these investments, as well as any considerations they may have pursued to customize their approach for, uh, for Indian firms. Before we jump into the panel, uh, I'd actually like to take an opportunity to just share more broadly about what Indian investment in the US uh, as a whole uh, looks like. We, um, we've been engaged with, uh, with a survey uh, for about a decade now. Uh, it's called Indian Roots American Soil, and it basically surveys Indian industries business footprint across the US. Um, and uh, this report over the years has really become the reference authority for anyone uh, tracking Indian FDI, job creation, CSR, R&D, uh, et cetera, and our data is used by both Indian companies uh, as well as American industry chambers, legislators, et cetera, uh, and, and many of us who have joined today seeking to understand uh, better Indian business trends and secure new investments uh, in their areas. So our 2020, 2020 report was the most extensive so far uh, with responses collated from over 150 uh, Indian companies uh, based across the US. And, uh, you know, here we have a, a very quick sort of breakdown of where Indian industries uh, investments lie sector wise. So, as you can see, information technology and telecommunications is kind of the, the biggest chunk uh, of, uh, of our sector breakdown. Then we have life sciences and pharmaceuticals and healthcare, then a little bit of manufacturing, automotive uh, and energy, which form the, the bigger um, chunks and, and then um, smaller breakdowns of, of other sectors. 
Uh, as far as the geographical presence of Indian industry uh, is concerned, we are actually present across all 50 states, as well as DC and Puerto Rico. Um, states indicated here in blue have the greatest concentration of Indian companies. So uh, over 15 companies uh, are present uh, in those states which are, have an Indian uh, heritage. In yellow, we have a medium concentration between five and 15 companies. Uh, so we uh, really encourage these states to to keep up their uh, engagement with uh, with Indian industry, uh, and you know FDI is is a marathon. It's it's not a sprint. So you know we're here to to kind of help that process, and uh, and then we have our friends uh, in in green, which are which have less than five Indian companies as per you know our survey and our tracking uh, within their state. But you know what? These are the states that would benefit the most from such kind of an engagement in trying to attract um, greater FDI and we're here to help and connect you with Indian industry as we go further. Here we see um, that the aggregate of Indian industries investments in the US surpassed $22 billion. And this is the highest we've ever recorded. And this is not even the full extent. This is only the companies that have responded to the survey. So the actual investment uh, is, is actually uh, a lot more. And uh, we, the, you know, the top 5 states that have received the maximum investment from Indian companies are Texas, uh, New Jersey, New York, Florida, Massachusetts, California, and, and so on. In the next slide, we have the total number of uh, job creation uh, in the US uh, Indian companies have generated or safeguarded uh, 125,000 jobs across the United States. And the top five states benefiting from maximum Indian FDI generated employment uh, are Texas, California, New Jersey, New York, Florida. Um, and, uh, and yes, here, here we have a, um, a same kind of a top five states uh, listing by highest concentration of Indian companies by states receiving the most FDI and by states where most uh, jobs have been created um, by by Indian companies. Now, coming on to uh, R&D expenditure, 47% of uh, the companies surveyed answered that they, uh, that they are investing in R&D in the US, uh, and that's a testament to the US innovation ecosystem, which, which we will hear more about from our, uh, from our economic development agency partners. Um, and, uh, and their total R&D spend in the US is, is a little short of a billion dollars. And we also track uh, Indian companies' corporate social responsibility expenditure, which is which totals 175 million at the moment. 56% um, of the companies answered that they that they are engaging uh, in CSR work, and this is an ongoing process as we encourage them to get more and more enmeshed in uh, in the sort of the social fabric uh, of the U.S. Um, just a quick indication about Indian companies' uh, future plans very broadly. Uh, we have 77% of the companies responding that they would be increasing, um, planning to increase their U.S. investments over the next five years, uh, planning to 83% planning to hire more jobs, uh, hire more employees in the U.S. Uh, in the next five years, uh, and 44% answering that they want to enhance their R&D expenditure or in the next five years. Now, all of these future plans are actually pre-pandemic. So, you know, just with that disclaimer, um, we, I, you know, I, I just want to put that out there. But I think, you know, the U.S. continues to remain a, a very significant market, a priority market uh, for Indian companies. And 
And even through the pandemic, let me just take a moment and highlight how our companies uh, really responded to, to the pandemic and, and as lives and livelihoods were threatened across uh, the US in the beginning, uh, Indian companies made a lot of efforts to uh, bolster their local economic communities. Um, they provided supply chain assistance. Uh, they repurposed their manufacturing facilities to um, to pivot and and make um, essential units and PPE instead of uh, you know uh, say auto components and other things that they were manufacturing. Um, uh, hospitality companies provided free rooms for uh, U.S. Uh, first responders, uh, and uh, and a lot of our tech companies actually launched and enabled you know e-learning platforms uh, and provided access to STEM and computer skills based uh, online courses for students and teachers who were suddenly faced with you know distant distance uh, learning initiatives. So the point that I really want to stress here is that uh, you know yes, Indian investment creates jobs. But Indian investment also truly these companies, you know, adopt these communities uh, as their own and they put the, wherever they put down roots, uh, they, they invest in um, in community building in CSR activities. Uh, and, um, and, and, like I said, you know, we, no 1 could have predicted the circumstances today. Um, the economic effects of the pandemic have certainly slowed down some trade and investment. Uh, but, you know, it, it has been more of a, a sector specific. Uh, story, but what really holds true is that the U.S. remains an important market for Indian industry. And uh, with that, let me bring in some of our uh, panelists to share about what their investment strategies have looked like over the years. But you know, especially um, over over the last uh, few years. So um, let me start with you, uh, Anurag. Anurag, um, you're the vice president of. Global government affairs uh, at Infosys. Um, Infosys has made investments in six U.S. states in the last three years. That's that's amazing. That's an incredible story, and you've personally led the you know investment steering committee and built lasting relationships and partnerships with state economic offices. Um, could you share a little bit more about your decision making process and and the support that you received? Uh, from these states and, and especially uh, re with regard to your investments in North Carolina. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Shachita and, and to Confederation of Indian Industry for being such a great business leader um, for Indian industry all over the world, including the U.S. Uh, thanks to Select USA for having us. Um, and one of the reasons why I believe I was selected to uh, serve on this panel is because our company has, in fact, spent uh, a lot of the last three or four years um, investing in uh, capital um, facility, capital expenditures, uh, facilities across the U.S. and uh, also in hiring. Uh, so job, jobs plus FDI. Uh, the journey began in 2017 when we decided that because of the way. Now uh, I should back up and say we're we are an IT services firm, um, and what. Put it simply, we we are brain power by the hour. So if you are X company and you have a great idea but need to find a way to make it real, right? We'll do that for you. And we've got a lot of smart people. Um, and and when we compete in the market, we try to provide as many smart and and appropriate people for the project at hand, uh, the innovators, digital transformation, and such. Uh, over the years, um, um, we had done it one way, which is 
uh, we have this amazing talent pool in India. So we have 250,000 employees worldwide, with about 150,000 of those are in India, an amazing talent pool um, for, for STEM-related jobs. So uh, we would bring over the best and the brightest um, uh, to fill tech jobs that otherwise um, uh, the, 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 there was a shortage in talent in the United States. Um, we did that for many years, and the vast majority of our U.S. workforce um, were visa holders. Uh, in, in recent years, we've realized that that's not the direction where um, uh, digital transformation or tech jobs should be because things are moving very fast. Um, uh, you no longer have nine to 12 month projects or 18 month projects. You have six week projects. Uh, you have to be nimble. You have to be close to the customer and their customers. Uh, and all of that pointed towards uh, the future of the workforce is hiring local. Um, and then in order to hire local, we need to create centralized um, facilities. Now, at the end of my few minutes here, I will mention how things have shifted a little bit um, um, because of COVID um, and, and work, workforce related changes there. I'll get to that. But I will say the the formula was pretty simple. Let's pick some places that we want to be our center of operations. Um, uh, so. When we made that decision, I interjected myself as, as government and public affairs, and I had one simple sentence, uh, and I said to the senior leadership, if we're going to do this, let's not do this alone. Let's partner with the ecosystems. Let's partner with the government and government-related um, uh, uh, entities in the places where we're going to go. Uh, little did I realize that that one sentence would make me in charge of selecting the states. Um, and so the road trip began, uh, it, it, and we ended up selecting in Indiana, um, Texas, North Carolina, Rhode Island, Connecticut, and Arizona. Uh, and in each each of those six places, we've built a center and we've made a jobs commitment. Uh, in total, um, we've hired thirteen thousand American tech workers in the last uh, in the last uh, three years. Uh, and uh, partly to satisfy the jobs commitments, partly because that's the direction we're going. Um, and we intend to hire about 10,000 more by, ne by next year. So um, when, when I started on this road show, uh, I would call people I knew. It was pretty much that simple. Um, a great example is the state of North Carolina. In North Carolina, um, there's a friend of mine and a champion of U.S.-India relationships with the state senator, Jay Chaudhry. So I called Senator Chaudhry. Senator Chaudhry says, stay on the line. I'm going to connect you with Chris Chung um, of Economic Development Partnership for North Carolina. And the three of us got on a call. And I said, look, we don't really know exactly what we're after, but we've decided to select a number of states. Um, and I think, I think because many Indian companies of our size um, uh, we're good at a lot of things. We're really good. We're publicly traded, New York Stock Exchange. We do a lot of things that big companies do really well. Investing in a new market, though, has a journey of its own. And little did I realize that what we started in 2017-18 was a journey that was going to be brand new to the company. So when we leaned on Chris Chung and I said, Chris, I'm, I'm coming to North Carolina. And he says, don't worry, we'll set the whole itinerary. You just show up. Um, got to North Carolina. Uh, Chris had set up um, a panel with um, all of the major, um, all, not major, not uh, universities, community colleges, other education related leaders in the area. Uh, we then shifted over. We, we went and met with the governor. Um, we met then. Uh, Chris had set up 
um, meetings with the with the county economic development organizations. And I will tell you, that doesn't happen everywhere. It was very seamless that these might have been different government entities. Um, Chris's organization is public-private. Um, some of the other ones were, were more with the Secretary of Commerce that was more just government and his initiative. For us, it, we didn't see any difference. Um, now that having come out of it, I realize they're all different entities. It was very seamless and uh, very customer friendly, I'll say. Um, and then uh, what was interesting is we met uh, industry. So uh, they had set up industry panels, um, life sciences, manufacturing, um, so on and so forth. Five executives from each of the each of the um, various um, uh, verticals. And what was what was fascinating is that all of a sudden it, it took a minute for for me to realize for us to realize wait a second some of these people are customers and it's the cio the chief innovation officer of a customer now ostensibly uh they were pulled together to tell us about how great it is to do work in north carolina but from a from a customer from an infosys standpoint i realized oh my goodness this is our customer or this is our potential customer um one of one of the executives said uh, if a company like yours moves to North Carolina, I will triple your business. Um, and you know that goes from that that goes from oh seeing you know you know what it's like to be in North Carolina to oh my goodness this is this is important for business. Um, the governor uh, opened his door. All three visits that we did uh, to myself to senior leadership uh, flew in from New York and from India. Um, and uh, overall, it was it was a very great experience. Um, and and we ended up making a massive jobs commitment, building a facility in Raleigh, um, talking to the folks in Charlotte um, about our existing operations there and how they would complement what we were building in Raleigh. Uh, and all of this was facilitated by the economic development organizations, not just not just Economic Development Partnership North Carolina, but the Wake County folks, the Charlotte folks, the governor's office. Um, re really well done. Uh, the if I take a look at all six states. I will say one of the pain points always ends up being what happens after they open your eyes and open your world to wow, this is what you need is when you switch over to, uh, you know, executing a contract for your jobs commitments and, and, and the programs. And I think really this is a message for local lawmakers. Uh, the local lawmakers turn the programmatic side of it into a real uh, nightmare at times or just levels of complexity that you don't imagine. So I think that 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 is that is an area that I think so I met with 18 different states, uh, countless EDOs. Um, obviously, we selected six in the six. The only pain points really were at that point of contract ex execution. Um, and I think that that that's more a message for the state lawmakers. Um, I will just end with this Shuchita. Uh, what we're finding with the COVID um, situation uh, is that the jobs commitments, right, were focused, let's just say, in North Carolina, in Indiana. Um, but now that uh, people are working from home, if we hire someone in Atlanta and say, hey, you're slaughtered from North Carolina, they reasonably say to us, well, why can't I just stay in Atlanta, right? The, the answer, if you go all the way around, is something like, well, because we made our jobs quick in North Carolina. Um, and But the reality is, is that's causing a very a big tension. Now, what I see as a positive coming out of this is that, um, uh, is that we are finding uh, that in terms of client service, us serving our clients, uh, even if you're working from home, 
the, the client service is still better in regions and regional groupings. So we might not have everyone going to the Raleigh office every day, right? But, but more and more business is trending towards at least having everyone in the same geography. So we might get back to that tension may lessen um, over time. Um, I'll, I'll stop there and see if you have a question. No, thanks, Anurag. Uh, you know, phenomenal to hear about the partnership that uh, that was built between you know your company and the state leadership and the economic development authority, and and hopefully you know those uh, the the situations created by the the pandemic will hopefully you know ease out um, over time. Uh, let me actually uh, turn to to Chris at this point. Um, Chris, you've been um, you know the CEO of the uh, economic development partnership of North Carolina, a real force in in attracting uh, global companies, uh, multinationals, and and indeed Indian companies uh, to the state, uh, especially in these like uncertain times. You know what's what's really made the North Carolina difference. You know what's what's uh, how have you ensured that your economy continues to thrive? Um, companies uh, from different markets, uh, you know, come with their own kind of strengths and uh, and their own. Um, you know, value systems around them. So, uh, why why attract uh, Indian investment? Can you just you know talk us through your your overall uh, India strategy? Great, thank you, Shushita, and uh, thank you as well. I'll echo Anurag's gratitude to CII and Select USA for giving us all a platform today. Uh, for us, I, I think when you think about what economic development organizations with, are tasked with doing, of course, we are here to try to facilitate more job creation and investment into the communities that we represent. And so as someone whose job every day is to do that for North Carolina, we want to look at every possible opportunity to bring that economic prosperity into North Carolina, bring that private sector investment in that's going to lead to the, the job creation and employment of North Carolina residents or the recruitment of talent from outside the state to come live here. And we're always trying to figure out where do those opportunities come from? Uh, there can be certain sec industry sectors that we believe align well with our natural advantages as a state uh, based on our industry clusters, based on our educational assets. And so we're going to target some of those industry sectors that we think are a good fit and that companies in those industries may find it very advantageous to be in North Carolina. Similarly, we're also always trying to figure out what geographies of the world make sense for us to promote North Carolina in more aggressively in an effort to convince companies from those parts of the world to expand into our state when they decide to locate in the United States. And India is a, a, a no-brainer for, for us. It, set aside all of the personal and cultural ties that North Carolina has with India, which there are extensive ones. I, I think when you look at our higher education institutions, when you look at some of our major employers, we have a lot of individuals of Indian descent living and working in North Carolina days. Set aside even that for a minute. That That's, of course, a major advantage. But if you just look at the business case for companies coming out of the India market, we're going to look at places where there are innovative companies that are able to be successful on a global stage. And India has been uh, one of the tremendous success stories in that regard. And so it's a natural uh, area for us to target with our efforts to try to, to pinpoint those technology companies, those life science companies, those manufacturers that are based in India, but they have global aspirations or have already demonstrated global success. 
we want to make the case about North Carolina to those companies that are thinking about their next growth location. And we want that to be here in North Carolina. You heard Anurag's story about Infosys. Really what drove Infosys's decision uh, was talent. Uh, they were looking for these places where they could create these local talent pools uh, and, and staff their engagements uh, effectively that way. I feel like that is one of the biggest advantages we've been able to put in front of companies from India and frankly from anywhere in the United States or around the rest of the world. North Carolina has a tremendously compelling value proposition when you talk about human capital and talent availability. It's not just the talent that we are producing organically from our two-year colleges and our four-year universities. It's also the in-migration of people. As one of the fastest growing states in North Carolina, in the United States, North Carolina continues to be a destination for people with high educational attainment and of working age who are moving here that either seek economic opportunity or seek a better quality of life or some combination of all of those factors. And that makes it an even more fertile pool of talent for companies like Infosys to tap into when they set up operations. I think whether it was pre-pandemic, and, and certainly I think it's going to continue to be an advantage post-pandemic, that talent proposition has been the defining sales feature of North Carolina when we're talking to companies, global, large, mid-sized, small, everything in between. Every company depends on having access to the very best human capital so that they can innovate and stay ahead of their competitors in their industry. And we believe that North Carolina is extremely well positioned to provide that talent solution to companies in all kinds of different industry sectors. So I think that's been where North Carolina has shown success. It is certainly a big part of what we talk about when we get the opportunity to speak to companies uh, like Anurag's or other Indian companies that we have successfully talked with about expanding and locating here in our state. Uh, we had another great win about uh, two years ago, announced it's part of the Kaliani Group uh, Barrett Forge. It's a manufacturing supplier for automotive and aerospace components. Uh, I think, Anurag, we even, we even asked you to provide the perspective of Infosys in terms of your experience setting up. And so each of these successes that we generate gives us that much greater probability to get the next company because now we've got this whole cadre of ambassadors, if you will, um, who are willing to tell their story about why they chose North Carolina. And that peer-to-peer -peer testimony that is far more powerful than anything I could ever say, right? At the end of the day, I am a paid spokesperson for North Carolina. Folks like Anurag are not. They're going to tell their story from a place of, look, this is what we went through, the good, the bad, the ugly. But in more cases than not, the good is going to be by far the biggest part of the story from companies that have located successfully here in the state. I think last thing I'll say is we decided a couple of years ago in the wake of Infosys's decision to go ahead and, and realize something we'd talked about for a long time that our Indian business community in North Carolina had been uh, asking for for a long time, which was a dedicated representative office for North Carolina in the Indian market. One, it's just it's difficult for us to prospect in that part of the world without having a physical presence. And two, there's tremendous opportunity. Like I said, when you look at the inflows of Indian investment coming into the US, we were able to round up some funding, public and private, and open up an India, North Carolina office in late 2018 with a sole focus 
on continuing to attract more foreign investment uh, into North Carolina. So that person works for us. He used to work for Select USA, actually in India. We were able to pick him up. He's been a fantastic addition to the team. And his job every day is to connect with Indian companies that have US expansion and location plans and to tell the North Carolina story in a way that hopefully leads to those companies taking a closer look here. And eventually like Infosys, like Kalyani Group, deciding to go ahead and, and set up operations and create jobs. Uh, so it's a tremendous partnership. We feel like we bring a lot to those companies and it's an honor every time we get the opportunity to tell that story to yet another Indian company that is in high growth mode and looking at a, their next home here in the US. Yeah, thanks, Chris. I think that's a that's a great approach having a, a dedicated India office, you know, relying on the testimony of this peer to peer uh, sort of reference network almost, uh, you know, in the ambassador network that you mentioned creating, you know, from within the private sector. Uh, a lot of the things that you that you said would would resonate with with us with a lot of uh, Indian companies out there and I and I hope you know, our Indian companies are listening when when you say that you've got the right talent, uh, you know, surrounding all of the important uh, sector areas, which I earlier outlined in my presentation that, you know, the tech sector, the pharma sector, the manufacturing sector, you've been able to attract investment uh, in those sectors because you have the right kind of talent uh, around these um, these areas. But, you know, Chris, Infosys is a is a giant, right? It's a giant. So they come in with massive needs, big requirements, big uh, impact, um, and uh, you know their their story and their journey is is sort of completely um, different to say you know a small company that would be looking to make its maybe first you know little little small investment uh, into starting up a um, you know a representative office or or something uh, just to get their feet in the water and and see you know how things go. So, what is um, what is some you know practical advice that you would give to uh, to companies looking uh, to make their first investment like that? So, you know, basically, how would you treat a smaller company or a smaller investment? Uh, would that be any different to how you support uh, an an MNC basically? I would hope not, because we know that some of these smaller companies, of course, uh, will end up being extremely successful within their own industries. And if we're able to get them here to North Carolina when they're in those early uh, days of, of their company, we can be partners with them as they continue to grow. Now, of course, along issues like state incentives or local incentives, those are all tied, of course, no matter where you go in the United States, to the number of jobs that you're creating or the amount of investment that you're making. So scale matters in the context of those conversations. But in terms of assistance, in terms of the, the value proposition that North Carolina brings for companies, that really shouldn't make much of a difference whether you're a small company, mid-size, or very large. At the end of the day, I genuinely believe that companies are all looking for the same things. They're looking for access to best-in-class talent. They're looking for a good partner who can help them. And I think Anurag mentioned that, that partnership with states and communities was a key driver in their decision. And I think that's going to be even more important to smaller companies that may not have the global reach and resources of a multinational like Infosys. And so a piece of advice I would give to those smaller or mid-sized companies is uh, one, if you have the ability, 
there are a lot of very good consultants who can advise companies successfully on market entry strategy. I know CII is a resource for that sort of thing. Select USA can be a resource. And of course, there is also private business consultants who can help guide those conversations. If that's not something that's feasible for a company, then that's where I think you've got economic development groups who are more than happy to share information, share contacts. Again, a lot of the same things that you heard Anurag talk about that we do, did for Infosys, we'd be happy to do that for any company if it helps them arrive at the decision that North Carolina is the best place for them to be. It is what we do. That is the service that we are tasked with doing. Everything that we do is free, of course. Uh, our job ultimately, though, is if we can do our jobs well, hopefully those companies decide to set up shop in North Carolina. So please use us as a resource. Please get in touch with our India representative in North Carolina. I think at least in terms of North Carolina, we can help answer a lot of those questions that smaller companies may have about, okay, well, what, what do I need to do from a legal standpoint, from a financial standpoint? I think that's where we can continue to be uh, of good assistance to those companies, even if they're on the smaller end of the spectrum. Thanks, Chris. That's fantastic. And and if there are companies out there who are looking uh, to help, um, you know, looking for help in their decision making process, you know, please feel free to reach out to either CII or Select USA, and and we'll be happy to uh, to connect everyone further into economic development agencies uh, as per their needs. Um, thanks, Chris. Um, Lawrence, you have you have a lot of. Uh, you have a lot of experience in, in um, uh, economic development and as director for international uh, business strategy at the Minnesota Trade Office. Uh, we'd, we'd love to hear your insights on, you know, what is your strategy for attracting uh, investment? Let me, you know, delve a little bit into, into your process. How do you go about identifying uh, targets uh, and, and, you know, continuing an ongoing uh, conversation with investors? How does, how does all of that work? Absolutely, and happy to share a little bit about that. And, and like everybody else, thank you to CII and Select USA for this. Uh, thank you to uh, Kapil for inviting us to join um, today from the the state of Minnesota uh, on behalf of Governor Tim Walls and Lieutenant Governor Peggy Flanagan uh, from Minnesota, and Commissioner Steve Grove, who runs our Department of Economic uh, Employment and Economic Development. It's a real pleasure to be here today, um, and, and thank you for for inviting us to join the panel. Your question, Chuchita, is is a really interesting one, and I think one that um, that has been uh, reflected in the answer that Christopher gave earlier, um, but but is is sort of evolving as we're going through the pandemic and thinking about um, about how we do this. We start with where we have sectors of strength, like what makes Minnesota special. Um, we are a, a state in the the middle north part of the country. Um, we've provided great music and great entertainment for the rest of the world, and we've had technology that has been impacting the rest of the world since people probably drew their first breath and they didn't realize it. Uh, they didn't realize how close they've been to a, a 3M technology or an air filtration system or a Medtronic medical device or a General Mills food product. Um, and so we take that and, and look at the sectors where we've really had this impact, this global impact. And we have um, a depth in these sectors and, and some really innovative um, processes and technology around them. But we also know in Minnesota that, you know, we aren't a commercial a place you're going to commercialize to sell to Minnesotans. There's only 6 million of us um, in Minnesota. So what you have to do here is figure out how you take that innovation and get it out to the rest of the United States, right? So 
when we look at our targets and we look at our sectors, we think about food and ag, we think about medical technology, we think about fintech, um, we think about energy, like uh, clean energy generation and transmission efficiencies. Um, and we try to identify those sectors where we have the innovation here in the commercialization capacity to really integrate that technology into those sectors and into those organizations and then deploy them across the United States. Um, and what are the supports that those companies that are doing that need? Like you would never know that, and you might not have any reason to know that, you know, Target as a retail company is headquartered here, that a lot of Wells Fargo, Wells Fargo's operations are based here in Minnesota. Um, it was an acquisition of a Minnesota company to Wells Fargo in San Francisco that led to the national footprint for Wells Fargo. You've got US Bank. Um, and where we sit is kind of headquarters and enterprise level systems. So you think about the supports then that need to go into those technologies to help them reach um, or, or go into those companies to help them reach their markets. And then when we identify our targets, and this, this plays off of what Christopher said earlier, we think about our strengths, like what is your pain point? What, are, what is the company trying to accomplish? Um, and how can we ease those pain points? Is it around talent? Is it around being in an innovation cluster? Um, do you need to be tied into an ecosystem that's specific for medical technology? And how can we plug you into that? Um, and then finally, I think we think about it as a region, right? If you're coming in from outside the United States, and even if you're in the United States, you know, it's a continental country. It's, it's probably 20 different markets in one giant market. And what works in Minnesota and the culture in Minnesota is going to be different than the culture and what works in Texas. And that's okay because it, it plays to the strengths of what makes our economy strong. Um, so that's kind of how we go about identifying our targets. The last piece of it is we, we got to know who's here and what are they doing and who are they working with and, and how can we create a relationship with them so that it's not just about the ribbon cutting or the, the event where we announce some sort of incentive package. It's really about the, the marriage. We want it to be a good marriage through the process and the evolution of the company and their life cycle. Uh, and so that is another area where that's how we identify our, our targets. And it really, can we, can we find somebody where we can work with them over time to, to try to see their economic success be reflected um, in Minnesota and, and and reflect upon Minnesota as a place where they were able to grow and scale. Uh, so those are, you know, we think about sector, we think about strengths, we think about relationship uh, with the existing businesses we have, um, and then really just try to get out and, and meet people and meet them where they are in their, both their physical locations and in their evolution um, as a company. One, other thing that, and, and this is in the aftercare, um, we see like there's not a lot we can do as a state. Like we're probably not going to be a customer for the technology. Um, we can't mandate that somebody buys the technology. But what we can do in the aftercare is continue to be, uh, to, to try to deliver value and content to the companies that are here so that they feel better informed and they understand what, what's happening in Minnesota. Because we view the executives that are based here as our, our best advocates when they're calling back into headquarters and saying, you know, I want to expand or um, I think we should, you know, we're looking for a place in, in North America to put a division. We want those 
executives to be able to say, we should do it in Minnesota. And we know we can do it in Minnesota because of the relationship we have with state government. So some examples are we hold an annual event where we bring all of our foreign-owned enterprises together um, from India, from Japan, from everywhere. We bring them together and just try to get them together in a room and say, you know, we think you, you're important to us. Um, you know, Indian companies, as you saw in that graphic, there's thousands of Minnesotans whose livelihood and their family's livelihoods depend upon the success of those Indian businesses operating in Minnesota. And we have, um, we have a, a, a common destiny in this, and, and we want to tie those together. So we bring the foreign-owned representatives, uh, the, the executives from the foreign-owned enterprises in the state together with the governor, with the lieutenant governor, with key opinion leaders and key content providers so that we can discuss what's happening and, and what you're seeing. And it's led to some great interchanges. Um, you know, we've we've been contacted about different initiatives that are working its way through the state legislature that might have an impact on Indian businesses that we wouldn't have looked at and known and said, oh, this, this could be problematic or this could be really helpful. Uh, and having that exchange with the companies that grows out of those events, like the Foreign Donor Enterprises event, um, are, are really key. Um, and one other one other point that we want to make is um, or I want to make in identifying our targets in, in the discussion as we talk with them. You know, there's a lot of draw to the big cities. Um, you know, Minnesota is a huge land area, right? We're the size of the United Kingdom, and we're only around six million people, and so we're very focused in in a couple of key regions. But there are a lot of smaller cities around the state where you have eager local representatives that want to help, that, that want to get you, um, get the business there and have the business be successful. And it goes back to the, a little bit of the conversation that the experience that Infosys had, where you had all of these different forms and you've got all of these different authorities to work for. In some of these smaller cities, we found that we've been able to streamline that process. So, you know, you bring the county, the city, the state together all at the same time. So you've only got to have one one zoning meeting or, or one approval meeting where you can just get through the pipeline a little bit quicker because I think we understand and I'm, I'm sure North Carolina is the same way. You're not in business to complete forms and you're not in business to, to create employment. You're in business to create revenue and anything we're asking you to do that takes away from that has to be able to provide some value to your mission of doing well for your stakeholders and by your business. And so we, with the smaller cities, see real opportunity where you can get in and you can really, really work closely with, with some folks that are sophisticated in their business approach and, and get to a result that leads to you getting through the incentive process effectively, reduces the red tape that's in there and gets you to the mission of delivering the value to your customers and delivering that revenue back to your headquarters. Yeah, thanks Lawrence. I think some very important points in there, you know, what you said about recognizing the difference uh, in the regions from, you know, within the country and the differences in, in doing business that come uh, with that. I think that's a very important distinction uh, and especially for EDOs that are, uh, you know, kind of new to the game and, and trying to uh, understand how this works. Um, and the other thing you said about, you know, bringing foreign companies together, 
to understand their needs, how to support them better, because, you know, these companies needs are constantly changing very dynamic. Um, and, and so not only are you able to avoid, provide a more sort of custom level of, uh, of service, but also kind of building a sense of community, uh, around, uh, foreign investments, uh, in the state, which, which I think is a, is a very important, um, you know, value system around building that ecosystem. Um, so, yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks a lot. Let me, um. Let me try and uh, bring in in couple uh, at this point. Um, a couple, uh, you've, you've been a chair of the CII India business forum for the last uh, 2 years and you've. Um, played an important role in furthering bilateral US India trade and investment ties. Uh, you lead public affairs for an incredibly dynamic, large uh, tech uh, organization. Uh, can you share with me about the evolution of uh, Wipro's U.S. strategy uh, overall? Has the nature of your investments changed uh, over the years? Have your priorities and your uh, needs changed? And, uh, you know, basically, what are Indian companies uh, looking for when they're trying to make these uh, investment decisions? Yes, uh, uh, thank you. Can you. Am I audible now? <laughs> Uh, and sorry about that. And, you know, quite frankly, uh, you and our other 3 speakers were fabulous. Uh, excellent. And I just want to highlight something before I forget about Lawrence and Christopher that separates their, their, their organizations over others. And I'm sure Anurag would agree with this is that they clearly listen to their companies. What I have found is not all EDOs and not all investment groups are created the same. And the good ones are the ones that actually listen to the companies and they grow and they evolve with the companies and the company's needs. Uh, I have interacted with some horrible EDOs that seem to be more like uh, cookie cutters. I won't name companies, um, you know, their, 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 their strategic advice, but it seems like they use the same strategic advice for every customer. Clearly, Minnesota, North Carolina don't do that. And um, I really, really enjoyed both their presentations and obviously um, uh, enjoyed listening to Anurag and their strategy. We're, we're no different than an emphasis in terms of who we are. We are a global information technology consulting and business processing services company. And we're based in India, obviously, in, in Bangalore. Uh, but when it comes to the United States, we've invested about $3 billion over the last 10 years. And that investments have covered employment, capital, operational investments, and CSR. And we've been listed in the New York Stock Exchange since 2000. Um, and, you know, I, I, that, that $3 billion covers a, a variety of things, uh, including uh, acquisitions uh, and investing through Wipro Ventures. We have a company called Wipro Ventures, which serves as a venture capital fund for us uh, in startups, uh, small startups uh, based all throughout the United States. Uh, you know, I, I want to give a plug for, for Lawrence real quick, because the state of Minnesota has been great to us. Uh, about two, two years ago, we opened up an office in Minneapolis. It's a small office. Uh, it has approximately 250 uh, employees there. Uh, when we started, I think about two years ago, it had about 100 people uh, and predominantly all local hires. And it's uh, as what Lawrence said before. It's a fintech office for us, and it and it serves and it really manages a lot of the fintech that we're doing in the Midwest, uh, and it's it's been great. Uh, I have to say that uh, because of Lawrence, we had great representation from both the state and local officials, who actually never really knew or understood Indian tech companies, uh, and I, I find that 
you know, what they read in the papers or what they hear from friends is very actually different than when they actually meet us and see how big we are, how uh, sophisticated we are, and how we have evolved over the last five years. I think uh, people's perceptions of, of our company, like a company like Wipro, is that uh, we just have a bunch of people sitting at laptops, banging away at keyboards. Over that five years, um, now we are producing products, we're building products, we are leaders in cyber, we are leaders in AI, we are leaders in fintech. And those requirements have changed. The kinds of startups that we work with have changed. The skill needs have changed. And I know both Lawrence and Christopher and their states um, have seen that because I know both states provide excellent upskilling opportunities too, right? So it's not just about acquiring um, talent and having the talent in your company, is how do you keep that talent fresh? How do you keep that talent up to date? Because where we were five years ago is entirely different from where we are today. And that becomes very, very important. Uh, and you can see that even from our acquisitions, you could see it with the partnerships that we're doing. You could see it with the R&D that we're working with. Um, we have evolved significantly uh, during that time. And uh, where we build centers uh, reflects that, where the companies that we work with reflects that. Um, and so it, it's been a fascinating story for Wipro over the last five years. I am proud. Uh, you know, Anurag alluded to this about their, his company. I know he's proud of it, is that uh, we are now at about 76% local hire, uh, which is we are, which is great. And as Anurag alluded to for emphasis and Christopher and Lawrence have touched upon this, that is all because we as a company have changed over the last five years. Not necessarily because the law required it, not necessarily because there's some people who really don't like uh, us using labor mobility and bringing people from around the world. It's really our company has changed. Our skill requirements have changed. And, and Anurag did a good job talking about how you have to pull that talent from key regions in the, in the U.S. and bring them into your company. Uh, and uh, nothing better reflects that than employment. Yeah, thanks a lot, Kapil. I think that was a very kind of holistic perspective on uh, on you know your particular um, evolution, but also uh, reflecting a, a bit about how Indian companies in general are looking at their uh, you know overall in investments as well. Um, let me um, let me uh, bring in you know both of our uh, our states uh, at this point. So, Chris, I know you said. Uh, that you have a, a trade office in Minnesota, you've, you've you know derived tremendous benefit um, from it. Um, do you do you and um, and to uh, Lawrence, do, do you have a, a Minnesota trade office in in India? You do as well. Yeah, we we have uh, through a contract. We have a representative um, base there mm -hmm. as well. Yes. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm I'm sure you know there's there's a lot of uh, sort of synergy between what they do and what you do. What do you think is the importance of travel? Have you been able to sustain uh, interest and and activity uh, in in virtual times, or do you think kind of in person the travel delegation format uh, is is kind of an important concept in in attracting investment uh, to both of you, Chris and then Lawrence? Uh, 
certainly it has made uh, we call it prospecting, but that act of getting in front of the companies that we would like to meet with it, that of course is made more difficult by the limits on travel. And, and keep in mind our, our ability to meet with companies from India doesn't just happen by us going to India. It also happens when we perhaps attend some of the same major industry conferences, trade shows, other settings where we can connect with global companies from all around the world. And none of those large scale events are happening in person. Uh, of course, none of the, the travel is, is really taking place. So it has made it a little bit more difficult. That's where I think having in-person representation in those key countries makes a lot of sense because Rahul, our India representative, is not constrained by the innovative travel. He's already based in India, of course. So to the extent he's able to travel within the country and still meet with some of those key decision makers, he's able to do that, even if we're not able to join him from North Carolina. I, I think that what the other thing is, of course, it's very difficult for the companies from India or from around the world to come to the United States to do a lot of the due diligence that they have to undertake as they get ready to make these very important investment decisions. If you're spending 10 million or 100 million on a new location, you're not going to make that decision in a completely virtual setting. You have to come spend time, sit across the table from state partners, local partners, potential customers who will be supplied by this new location. And all of that, of course, is much more difficult right now until we get past the pandemic. So we're hopeful a lot of those constraints disappear once the pandemic eases a little bit more into the uh, into the background, but there's still some ways to go on that yet. Yeah, and I, I think that um, one of the things that that and to pick up on Christopher's point, um, when the businesses come here, like it, it's sort of tough to explain Minnesota. Um, you might have seen it, you know, in movies or on weather maps. There's something that pops up. It's the coldest place in the United States, um, and it is, but it's sunny. Um, it's it's a dry cold. Uh, and it's sort of tough to explain what makes it special without having people come here. And Minnesotans are interesting, right? We're, we're not a transactional folk up here. We're, we're a relationship based. It, it's like harder to get somebody on the phone for five minutes than it is to get half an hour to sit down for a cup of coffee with them. And, and knowing that that challenge exists, um, you know, with the pandemic, it, it has been sort of tough. I mean, and, I, and I've seen it other places just getting people onto Zoom calls because we're so fatigued by it. Um, what I'm sort of looking forward to is when we do have people travel here and we're, we're fortunate that we're at number two hub for Delta Airlines and um, you know they don't go to India um, direct, but we've, they've got relationships to their, their partners that, that can get there. Um, that we're able to like, we're gonna kind of reestablish these, like let's go get coffee or tea together, sit down and have a meal together, or let's just, let's sit across from each other and understand what it is because what you're trying to accomplish. I mean, Cap and, and everybody else has talked about this. The most important thing you can do from an EDO's perspective is try to view the, the process from the view, from the perspective of the entrant. What are they trying to accomplish? And it's really hard to get that story across without building that trust and that rapport and saying, okay, how are you seeing the world? And let me as the state EDO kind of be your guide through it, like your concierge to help you make sense of why do I need to go to this authority now to get, and why do I have to talk to them? Um, and that's sort of a tough thing to convey without having the in-person presence. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, and um, and my question, kind of a, a wrap up question to to Kapil and, and Anurag now. Uh, two questions actually. Um, one, um, what are some mistakes that you may have seen EDOs commit? You know, what are some kind of are there are there any faltering steps? There, there may not be, but you know, like Kapil, you were saying that sometimes they take kind of a cookie cutter approach, and obviously that doesn't work at all. Um, are there other things like that that you know that they can really avoid the pitfalls and and have a better approach uh, to um, to attracting uh, Indian companies? Uh, Kapil, and then then Anurag, and then my final wrap up question. Uh, I was going to do like uh, uh, should my beer while I take this uh, question, <laughs> oh, because, <no. laughs> uh, uh, but, you know, look, I, I, I would say these two uh, representatives, uh, North Carolina and many and Minnesota, I don't think really fall into this, but where I have seen this is really in two places. Uh, one is the reluctance of EDOs to talk to federal officials when legislation is moving through. So uh, what I find is that an EDO will do a fabulous job of getting a company to invest. Now, if it's an international company, obviously then the federal issues and international issues are gonna play some role in that company's interest, whether it's data, whether it's, it's cyber, whether it's labor movement, labor mobility, those interests were gonna be important. Uh, but what I have found is that a majority of EDOs are reluctant to push their senators on that. Some states, uh, both uh, I, I don't want to mention by name, but you know, Anurag, both our companies have a significant investment in that one state, has been superb, absolutely superb, where even the governor has gone out aggressively to support our investments. I think the second thing uh, where I have found EDOs lacking at times has been this lack of understanding, and, and I want to go back to this cookie cutter approach. A lot of EDOs have been built around recruiting uh, businesses from Europe or Japan. Um, I still think that they struggle trying to understand Indian businesses and Indian interests and Indian needs. Um, uh, you know, Lawrence, I think, uh, it, it has a good self-realization that, you know, if, if Wipro comes into Minnesota, we're not going to be selling a lot of tech platforms to Minnesota itself. It's got to serve as a hub. Uh, for the other surrounding states. What I find is that um, a lot of EDOs don't, may not appreciate that or understand that, and that it makes it hard for us to want to invest in Minnesota, not because we don't like the cold air, or what, what, however he, he, he talked about the air there, because uh, Duluth is beautiful and there's so many great things about Minnesota. But if we don't have customers nearby, at least somewhat regionally nearby, it just makes it hard for us to invest. And so when an EDO pitches us, they're talking about great talent. Well, the reality is both our representatives here talked about how great talent they've got. They talk about, uh, even Christopher, I think, acknowledged the fact that almost every state has some kind of incentive when it comes to employment. A lot of the things that states offer more or less are relatively in the same ballpark. What's the differentiator is the aftermarket care that you provide or the after investment care getting to uh, platforms where you can meet other customers, getting to meet other investors, maybe even meeting incubators. Uh, and you know, all of the work we've done with incubators, our VCs have done it on their own, not through the uh, help of the state. And I think that that's where I think some of the EDOs and states uh, falter. 
after investment care, trying to help them continue to grow and meet other people. And I think a reluctance to push the federal delegation on some really bad policy that could undermine the investments that we just did in the state. Anura? Yeah, I think I'm gonna to add to that and add to a couple of the other earlier comments that couple made. Look, at the end of the day, um, economic development, I've, I've learned as a, as a consumer of economic development programs, um, it's a team sport. Um, our our needs, um, uh, which a company like ours has been learning about what are our actual needs when it comes to FDI, when it comes to talent attraction, uh, in terms of geographies and regions. Um, and as we explore what it is that we need and try to articulate it, um, the EDOs are listening and learning too. Um, and 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 where it works best is where the EDOs operate as a team. Right, so maybe to make this part of Infosys happy, uh, we need a direct line to the governor. Right, maybe to make this part of Infosys happy, um, we need uh, we need aftercare in 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 working with potential customers. Right, uh, you know, and and I think that the easier that the e the collection of EDOs makes that, um, not just from the economic development organization itself, but the government leaders. Right to the private sector participants uh, that help and support the EDOs, the more seamless that is. If you have a big company or in any company from a country like India, where where many of our companies are are just beginning growth mode or are on the early stages of their journeys um, into expansion in the United States, um, we're learning what we need. Right. And so all of a sudden, if I turn to the economic development organization, I said, look, this wasn't on my list, but we're actually, you know, need um, a little bit more. We're finding most of our hires are our family people. We need to a little need a little bit more on school districts or, you know, but but we never said it at the outset as our needs are evolving, as our understanding and our articulation of our needs evolve, um, having top to bottom, left to right um, uh, participation on the other side really makes it a better experience for us. And there are disconnects that I have seen in different states fistfights uh, between the public private sector EDO and the public sector secretary of blank, right? Or the governor, you know, being disinterested or seemingly disinterested until the very, very end, which doesn't help my job as a local US executive to pitch that state. Right, because you know what, my my local CEO would like to meet the governor if we're really going to invest X millions of dollars. But if you know the EDO says, well, no, that's later. I'm going to say, well, no. From my perspective, I need that now. And I, Chris is smiling because I think that came up a couple times. Um, uh, but it, you know, it, it all worked. So I, you know, it's it's less about what they're doing wrong and more about what I've seen really work right. Yeah, I, look, I, to build upon Anurag's point, I think that's. He, he actually ended that in a very positive way and probably the better way of, of answering that question. I think what COVID has shown Wipro, for example, is that uh, the governments, both at the federal, state and local level, have learned how to flex their muscles uh, and have determined who's an essential employee. Is your business really essential? Workforce, all these different types of things. If you're a new company coming in and investing in the state and then all of a sudden, Regulations are coming from all over the place. It can be a bit overwhelming. Uh, I can say for a fact that Lawrence did call me uh, a couple of months ago and just said, how you doing? 
I must say that he and only maybe two or three other states called and said, how are you doing? Uh, what can we do? Most of the state EDOs didn't call and say, hey, how are you doing? And I think that's that thing that can be done better, especially now where the rules and regulations are growing left and right. We're seeing transformational legislation coming through Washington, transformational trade agreements, OECD. I mean, there's a lot going on. So you want to bring companies into your state. I think that the policy side and being advocates on the policy issues becomes it will never it will, has never been more important than now. And I think EDOs need to really ramp up on that side of their service. Super. And and that was actually my last question. You guys already answered, which proves my point that Indian companies are like two steps ahead of everything. Um, <laughs> my <laughs> question was going to be, how do you see the, um, you know, the, the interplay between the federal administration and the state legislatures and the EDO development priorities, if everything's, if they're all on the same page and, and, and the, you know, collaborative um, sort of spirit around on that so uh, so thanks for preempting and and thanks for wrapping up on a on a positive uh, note. Uh, all that's uh, that's left for me uh, to do is is just say thank you uh, to everybody uh, on behalf of the Confederation of Indian Industry. Thank you everyone for uh, for joining us today and listening to the experiences of Indian companies investing across the U.S. Um, thank you to all of our panelists for an excellent discussion and for sharing insights on enhancing Indian investment in the US. Um, as we've seen, Indian companies, you know, not only put the investment uh, in and create jobs, but also become part of the social fabric and support the local communities in which uh, they operate. Uh, we hope these discussions were helpful uh, for everyone listening in. And as you plan your priorities and outreach uh, for the coming year, um, hopefully, you know, in a, in a post pandemic world, we'll be able to, uh, travel once again, we can, we can dream. Uh, but for that day, we, we are here to help. Uh, and as you build out your India engagement portfolios, uh, virtually as, as well as in person, uh, we'd, we'd love to, uh, meet and, and look forward to, uh, hosting all of you in, in India as well. So thanks again, stay safe and, uh, thank you for supporting the U S India partnership and the 2021. Select USA Investment Summit. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Bye bye.